Good morning, everybody. My name is Nicholas Todd, and I serve on the pastoral team here at LEFC, and we'll be in 1 Peter chapter 4 today. So uh, first I want to ask you a couple questions. Do you have any unpopular opinions? Opinions you kind of keep to yourself because you know it's just too risky to say it out loud. So a little more than a month ago, some of my social media friends started posting lists of things, lists of their unpopular opinions. So I put a list together today to share a little bit about myself. Um, I genuinely believe these things. I just don't often voice them because they are unpopular. So if you want to hear more about any one of these, feel free to uh, look for my email address on the website and ask away. I'm not selfish with these, so you know, know that everyone is entitled to my opinion. Here goes a list of my unpopular opinions. Number one, liver and onions is likely the best dish on the menu. Ooh, so good. So good. Number two, people who don't use punctuation in text messages are lazy. Number three, and this one might be a little niche, the best Weezer album was Pinkerton. I should also say that I like Nickelback. Uh, the opportunity to know this LAFC, I owe you one. Um, the opportunity to preach given to me by LAFC is what created this list. Uh, this list, it's, it's how you remind me of what I really am. Number four, orange juice should always have pulp. I've swung a little bit uh, with, with this one. I, uh, I used to think you should have to chew your orange juice. That's, that's a little intense. My family doesn't like pulp as much as I do, and so we get pulp-free. So I suffer for my family in our, in our kitchen, in our house. Number five, the manliest thing a guy can do is get a pedicure. I remember my first one. It was glorious. Number six, Star Trek is better than Star Wars. Any day. The characters are better, the moral and ethical dimensions and, and dilemmas, they're better. The plots, Star Trek is better than Star Wars, period. And, you know, look, uh, I, I could use that as a voice-to-text message. Uh, look at me helping you out with punctuation. And number seven... Most people in our context take way too many showers. You might need one a week. Maybe two. I'll give you two. So those are just seven unpopular opinions that have been filtered. I have others that I chose not to share today. But it's number four I want to come back to. Number four, orange juice should always have pulp. This phrasing kind of caught me when I put it together. It was easy to write uh, there's kind of a humorous edge to it, kind of makes me seem like a good person because I don't force my family to, to consume a pulpy orange juice that they don't like. It's my preference. And because of that, I suffer. I give that to them. And in the right moment, I would say it all again. But in light of the subject today in First Peter, I've been thinking about it a little too much. Suffering. Suffering is a major theme in our text today. And I started to pepper myself with questions regarding the topic of suffering. Here are some of the questions. Do I suffer? In light of scripture, 
What is suffering? Our text today, what is happening in 1 Peter that has Peter writing of suffering? What other words or phrases are used related to suffering? Some of them that I did think about were persecution, oppression, discrimination, uh, phrases, weathering a storm, bearing a burden. And then I started to change my questions. Do I experience persecution as a Christian? What is persecution? Am I persecuted when I don't get my own way? Or is that just a day in the life? Where does persecution exist in our world today? Does it exist in the United States of America? Does it occur here in Lancaster County? Now, I'm not going to answer all of these questions, but I'm, I might hit some of them broadly. Some of them were uh, addressed when a group of men and women gathered together, even before this series even started, where we looked at major themes, ideas, and key passages in First and Second Peter. So uh, we all gathered together, and I, I felt safe in that room. Um, there were a lot of trusted people, and I opened my mouth probably a little too much. I was saved by the truly diplomatic ones, and I left wondering how to reconcile some of my opinions with what people were experiencing in their lives and families. I tried to be more magnanimous when I opened our first and second Peter series starting in February, and I think it was a good journey for me. In the process of that, I ended up doing a survey. I asked three questions, and the final question was about a person's favorite book of the Bible. What is your favorite book of the Bible? And this is what I said that one Sunday when we, we started our series. I said, my favorite book of the Bible is James. That Leviticus is a close second, and that's not a joke. And the four Gospels are hard to compete with. The three most popular books of the Bible, based on the sampling of this church in order, were Psalms, James, and Romans. No one chose First and Second Peter. Now, there are people out there who would claim these epistles as favorites. And there were some here I learned later. But my speculation about why they don't more often come up as favorite books, it's, it's let me explain it here. At the end of his life, Peter writes these two letters, First and Second Peter, with a message that is not exactly something people can quickly connect to our modern day. The emperor Nero, at the beginning of 1 Peter, was just a threat in the distance. And by chapter 4, where we are at today, right now, Nero was using Christians as candles to light his streets. First century persecution is not what most of us have experienced in our context. We haven't seen it. I don't even think we're aware of much of it. And so Peter wrote, he wrote that our core identity is the same as these first century Christians, but our experiences and culture are significantly different. Let's read the text for today. We're going to be in 1 Peter 4, verses 12 through 19. You know, would you pray with me before we read? Lord, God of all creation. Might we hear Peter's words, hear his pastoral care, and remain steadfast in our faith, in our hope, and in our love. By your empowering spirit, may we have the passion of Christ as we explore this text and live it out. Amen. We're in 1 Peter 4, starting in verse 12. We're going to read to the end of 19. 
Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, those who suffer according to themselves, according to God's will, should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Our core identity is the same as these first century Christians, but our experiences and culture are significantly different. Let's consider the cultural shift. At the time of writing, Christ's followers were an incredible minority built on the identity of Jesus Christ, which struggled at times with their own mistreatment and how to respond to others who were mistreating them. One of the last things that Jesus did prior to the cross was tell Peter himself about the values of the kingdom of God. In support of blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be children of God, Jesus tells Peter, put down your sword. Why would putting down a sword be such a threat? Why would anybody fear such a thing? Well, one, it challenged Peter in his heart. And it was odd. It was odd against the culture that he grew up in. You know, if you think about it, the Jesus-following community, community 30-plus years after Peter was told to put down his sword, it was, it was a little weird if you think about it. They weren't like the rest of the culture. They wanted to be like Jesus, a threatening minority for odd reasons. The reasons are actually in 1 Peter, 1 Peter 2 to start. This is 1 Peter 2, 21 through 23. Let me read it. Because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. And when he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. We have 1 Peter 3, starting in verse 8. It's written, be like-minded, unified. Be sympathetic, love one another. Be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who are evil. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. 
The Christ-following community received this letter. They were reminded by Peter of their core identity in Christ and Christ's example. And because of this, they became targets for oppression. When their Christian identity was maintained, though, the mission results became a growing community. In 1 Peter chapter 4, Nero was on the scene. Christ followers are being mocked with greater aggression than ever before and being given to dogs to fight over, disguised as wild beasts, crucified and set on fire in the evenings to illuminate the night. That's their context. And where are we now in the United States? The Christian community has incredible sway. Research into religious and public life shows that approximately 70% of people in the U.S. call themselves Christians. 70% call themselves Christians. This could be by tradition, could be by family, it could be by denomination. Now, this is a decrease from the past couple decades. I recognize that. It's a decrease. And I actually saw some higher numbers than 70%. But still, 70% is a huge majority. You can see why politicians intentionally strategize on how to get the Christian religious vote. We're no longer a minority. We influence with innocence or selfish intent laws and society. Our culture and experiences don't see Christians being fed to dogs. We don't see Christians disguised as beasts We don't see them on our streets crucified or set on fire. Honestly, these methods of violence sound more like some of the racial issues that exist in this country. And most of us right here won't ever experience these extremes, and I pray to God these things don't happen to others. As a global Christian community, suffering is present. It presents itself in different forms based on the context. For our extreme local community, LEFC as a regional church will most likely experience it as sorrow. For other places in the globe, they'll pay in blood. The title of my sermon is Sorrow and Blood. Sorrow speaks of the grief we'll experience because of the social conflict and humiliation we might find ourselves in, in our, in our context. And blood speaks to those who have gone before us, or even now, to establish a church we can worship in today. Let me outline this final section of 1 Peter 4. I want to address the sorrow of our context, and then I want to look at the blood of the globe. We start with verse 12 in chapter 4. Follow along with me. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. So verse 12, it's bringing back the topic of, Christ, of a Christ follower's response to difficult ordeals that have already been evident in the previous chapters of Peter. It starts gently with a heart and moves into urgency. Friends, he writes. And then he addresses surprise. And I feel like we need to read a little bit between the lines. Imagine if you are already used to some level of hatred. You're already used to disinformation being out there about you. Discrimination already happens. But then it aggressively intensifies. 
It moves from a, a social mockery, a general opposition to murder in the streets. Peter writes with an urgency because these Christ followers that he writes were potentially caught off guard. They were shocked by the change of events. Friends, he writes, this is intense, but don't be surprised. This isn't strange. If they weren't supposed to be shocked, what are they supposed to think? Peter gives the answer in verse 13 in a traditional upside-down kingdom piece. Verse 13, but rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. The, leader, the readers of Peter's letter here are told not to be surprised by the heat they are experiencing, and then they're told to rejoice, to celebrate. Rejoice because that heat you are experiencing tests your faith, and allows you to, to participate in the sufferings of Christ. And this is a special bond being formed between them and the Lord. He experienced these same things, and it will get better. Maybe not in your circumstances, but when Christ's glory is revealed, it vindicates, potentially posthumously, that those that have suffered... All right. And then Peter puts out some guidelines, some conditions on all of this. We're going to be in verses 14 through 16. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. And rephrased, think of it like this. Christ followers, be consistent in your Christian living. Remain faithful in doing good. If you murder someone and you experience the consequences of that, you earned that consequence. If you steal, murder, or are involved in criminal activity, that is not acting in the name of Christ or in the fruit of the spirit of glory. Peter is saying there should be no just cause for a Christian suffering. The final section here is the foundation for all that Peter is writing. Basically saying what I just wrote is built on this piece here, and this is verse 17. For it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Everybody will someday answer to God for their life and behavior. Judgment, in general, is an important piece in 1 Peter as a book. We see it in chapter 1. We see it in chapter 2. We see it multiple times in chapter 4. And judgment cannot always be connected with guilt. Judgment feels heavy to me internally based on my life and what I have experienced. And when I hear the word judgment, I think of sentencing. I think of being guilty and punishment. 
Is that the only answer to what is judgment? Innocence is also part of judgment. Justice is also part of judgment. Declaration of what is good and right is part of judgment. And judgment we will face. And judgment also begins with the Christ follower. Let me steal from Peter here and say, friends, don't be surprised by this. Matthew 25 contains three parables coming from Jesus. Remember that when Jesus spoke and taught, I would say that 99% of the time, Peter was right next to him, or at least in earshot. Peter was almost always with Jesus. I'm sure there were moments he wasn't there, but that's why I give you 1%. When Peter writes the epistles of 1st and 2nd Peter, he likely hears Jesus in his head. And so Jesus, when he tells these three parables, these three parables in Matthew 25, often called the parable of the ten virgins, the parable of the bags of gold, and the parable of the sheep and the goats. Real quick, the sheep and goats, it's less parable-like than the others, but it still falls in line here. And this is what these th three things do. I'm not going to dissect them verse by verse, but Matthew 25 as a whole, all three of these parables, each of them to contribute to Peter's writing when he says that Christ followers will be judged first. It's no surprise. Friends, church, don't be surprised by this. May we be faithful in the calling God has placed on our lives. May we hear God's voice and respond in obedience. You know, I struggle with the topic of suffering and persecution on our own national level. And it risks me being a little precise, even pedantic regarding the topic. I want to recognize that people have experienced religious persecution in the U.S. I just think it rarely ends in violence. I think one of the biggest pieces Christians in America might experience related to suffering is social pressure and humiliation. And from this, we experience a sorrow, a grieving, because we do not want to live in social conflict with others. On a global scale, it might end in violent suffering. I want to talk about the phases of persecution. There are three phases. Persecution most often begins with a disinformation phase. That is when rumors are started or disinformation is propagated by social media, public opinion, conversations between people, which can turn public opinion against a person or a group. When correct information is not able to go out, to be put out, to be published, or even said, this rumor, this disinformation is slowly regarded as truth. This would be like Emperor Nero saying that the Christians were to blame for the burning of Rome. It's disinformation. It's not true. It's a rumor. This disinformation phase is what we experience far more frequently than the others. It occurs at all ages, 
But it gets really tricky when we begin to value social constructs and social connections. This means it can happen in elementary schools. It can happen in junior high, and it can happen in high school. A rumor, disinformation, is started about what you think, about what you believe, and even what you do because of your association with something, possibly because of your association with the church. People hear you go to church and they assume they know everything about you. These rumors and this disinformation is phase one. Phase two is discrimination. Because of the rumors and disinformation, you start to get treated like a second-class citizen. People will exclude you or they'll treat you differently simply because of whatever rumor, whatever disinformation has begun. You can't go to that school. You can't live in this neighborhood. You can't join this specific club. You can't have a certain kind of job. You can't really live free. And because of the disinformation that was started, people will not likely treat you as a complete person. They will likely not even pursue you. They will not even pursue what is true because their, their social standing would be at risk if they talked with you. Now, because Christians are a majority force in the United States, I think most examples of suffering and persecution end right there. There's often a system in place to attempt to set things right. It doesn't always work, but the hope is that the systems will help bring justice. Sadly, not everyone has equal access to the system or knows how to navigate it well. But guess what? You find an advocate or you be that advocate for someone else. Let me recognize that it hurts to be the target of discrimination. And I am, I am so deeply sorry if that's ever happened to you. I'm not sure I have genuinely experienced it. And I'm not sure if I ever will. I'm really sorry if it's happened to you. Forgive me. Forgive other Christians if you felt like we have stood by not advocating for you. Because it can then turn into something on the global scale. We're more likely to hear about phase three on the global scale, and that is violent persecution. Being a Christian today in some parts of the world is a high-risk commitment. The historical norm, norm is really, it, it's always been that way. Few times in history have Christians lived in extended times of, of peace, prosperity, influence, and freedom to practice their faith to its fullest expression. This kind of freedom, what we frequently experience here is an exception in Christian history. Even consider Christian history through the lens of the Bible. Which books of the Bible were not written from places of uncertainty, violence, exile, oppression, famine, displacement? There are, about, there are 66 books in the Protestant Bible. How many do you think have been written from or to contexts of uncertainty, violence, Exile, oppression, famine, and displacement. Almost all? An exception could be the Song of Solomon. 
In parts of our world today, churches are burned to the ground. Limbs are cut off. People are killed because of their profession of faith. They suffer tremendously, not just socially, but physically. It most often starts with rumors, ridicule, being marginalized, discriminated against. Then your sacred symbols are taken away or taken down. The church building is bulldozed. And then all that is left is sacred life to steal. Do you see why Peter pushes and reminds Christians to be consistent in their Christian living? To remain faithful in doing good? To act in the spirit of God? There should be no just cause for a Christian suffering. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are, those, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And these are the ones that came to mind for me. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of justice, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. I don't really suffer when I drink orange juice without pulp. I just don't get my way. This simple example saves me from an obnoxious Christian self-righteousness. What about for bigger things? What about genuine suffering from disinformation, discrimination, and violence? How do we resolve this suffering, whether it's resolved in sorrow or in blood? How do we resolve the evil we hear about or experience? I think the answer is complex and honestly impossible to solve with simple answers. Fortunately, as we struggle with this, we have scripture, which focuses on what God has done, will do, and is doing. It gives us the example of Jesus Christ. Jesus doesn't explain away the pain and the sorrow of the world. He comes where the pain is at its worst, and he takes it upon himself. Jesus doesn't explain why there is suffering. He doesn't explain why there is illness. He doesn't explain why there is death in the world, but he does bring healing and hope. And he allows evil to do its worst to him but he exhausts it. He drains its power and emerges with new life. There are four things I think we can reflect upon in light of 1 Peter 4, 12 through 19. Number one, 
Have you ever experienced disinformation or discrimination as related to your faith? How did you respond? Was there anything you could have done differently? Number two, pray that your attitude in suffering will not be a will not be surprise or resentment, but it will be trust in God and forgiveness towards others. If you are being mistreated for the name of Christ, ask God to help you see it as a blessing and give you profound joy that you are sharing the sufferings of the Messiah. Number three, ask the Spirit of God how you can pray, defend, advocate, and prepare the church of Christ for the future. Number four, Memorize Matthew 5, 9 through 11 this week. Read it daily. Let it tumble through your mind. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. Church, wherever you have gathered, I pray your time was one of reflection and unity. May God the Father surround you and those persecuted with his angels of light. May the Son surround you with all his blood outpoured. And may the empowering Spirit surround us, surround every one of us, surround us all with his fire of power to save, to keep, to heal, to protect each day, each night, each light, each dark, until our journey's end. Amen. Church, come back next week.